<laughs> okay guys how's everyone doing hanging in there good all right i brought a lot of markers today and today um i kind of feel bad that we didn't we didn't really cover much of muscle last time so hence why in the lab we just made the graph but today in lab we're going to do the full lab answer the questions and you'll be able to do that because i'm going to talk about all the properties of muscle so that you can do that all right so in our like 10 minute lecture or whatever it was 15 minute lecture uh yes or tuesday does anyone did anyone get anything out of that what were the major points that we talked about or discussed or anybody what's that That's right, yeah, that's like a yeah, detail that's not really in the PowerPoint slides, but it's, it's good to know how these big muscle fibers actually become what they are. It's not like one cell just like becomes this massive thing. It's like a bunch of cells kind of come together and fuse right, in order to, to make the muscle fiber. Yeah, so myoblasts fuse to, together to form the polynucleated muscle fibers. And it's pretty, you know, a stem cell, we don't really talk about stem cell biology that much in physiology, but myoblasts are essentially a stem cell-like, more stem cell-like cell that is a precursor to muscle, right? One of the first things we ever figured out how to do in a lab is we could take a skin cell, like a fibroblast, and we could give it one transcription factor, MyoD. If we get it to express MyoD, a skin cell, a fibroblast, and we can turn it into a myoblast. And then we could turn it into muscle. We did that like 20 years ago. So that was like the first finding. We're like, wow, if we like add something to this, we can turn it into something that becomes a muscle. Right? Like nowadays, we can take your skin cell and turn it back into a stem cell and then turn it into a neuron and like do all kinds of uh, fancy technologies, which the guy who discovered how to do that got the Nobel Prize in 2011. Um, but it all started with being able to take a skin cell and turn it into a myoblast, which we now know can become muscle fibers. Right? Okay, so yeah, we talked about that. What else did we talk about? Oh, I heard two things. Organization of skeletal muscle and... The myofibril, yeah, okay. So like, yeah, so the actual uh, organization of skeletal, yeah, yeah, that's right. So well, let's start there. So we talked about uh, muscles are composed of um, muscle fiber bundles or fascicles. which are composed of uh, muscle fibers, right? So there's an organization to that. I think that's this slide right here, right? This one. So a muscle itself, right? There's different levels to this. And, and something to keep in mind is that every level has like a surface layer of something else, like connective tissue, 
sugars, extracellular matrix. So you see that there illustrated in white. Not only does a muscle have tendons, right, and it's and connective tissue connecting it to the bone, but also between the bundles, there's connective tissue, and between the fibers, there's you could call it connective tissue. It's extracellular matrix, which is primarily composed of collagen, which is, um, and I don't know if you guys have heard, so there's a lady named Karen Chrisman. I'll show you guys a video. She, this is the, the easiest way you can actually see the extracellular matrix is, um, there's a lady named Chrisman, or Karen Chrisman at UCSD that is isolating the extracellular matrix and then so what she does is she's doing it for uh, therapy so it turns out that extracellular matrix has some regenerative properties to it so in other words if you take a heart and if you remove all the cells from the heart and you just have the extracellular matrix you can then put, so you remove everything. You just have the ECM. You can add stem cells to that and it will grow back and recreate a beating heart. So there's something in the extracellular matrix that tells the cells how to and where to organize in order to become a beating heart again. And so also, so that's somebody else has shown that. What Karen Christmas is doing is she's taking, she's going to the slaughterhouse. Well, it started that way. They go to the slaughterhouse, they take the pig hearts, they chop them into pieces, and then they decellularize. So they remove all the cells all the proteins, everything. And they're left with this extracellular matrix, which they then digest and then, so you can, you can watch and see what that actually looks like. And they're doing it for a therapy. Let's see if I can send the, wait. Wait, let's see if I can send audio. Nope. Send audio. Oh, you can hear that, yeah. So that right there, that white stuff, that's extracellular matrix. So that's if you remove all the cells, right? So she says she treats with detergent. So that will solubilize membranes. So that will remove all the cellular contents. So what you're left with is this layer that's surrounding every single level of muscle at the, at the bundle and at the fiber level. So this white stuff is primarily collagen. You guys all know collagen, right? So your extracellular matrix, this is, is primarily collagen. So they, what they treat with is collagenase, and that breaks down the collagen. Tissue 
and once the liquid hits body temperature, it forms gel pebbles. And it no longer It's like bone broth, right? Bone broth forms that gel. It's like that. So, uh, so they actually use that as a therapy. So what they show is if they, if they, if they you know, their heart attack models, if they inject this uh, ECM stuff into the heart, it, it uh, helps the heart recover after heart attack. And the way it does it is it actually initiates um, like uh, vascular growth. So angiogenesis is what they call it. So I think that's kind of interesting. That kind of allows you to visualize. So when we're show you this cartoon, where did I put it? Right, keep in mind that it's not just at the tendon where you have this connective tissue, it's also in between here, in between all these bundles. Right. Okay, cool, yeah, we talked about that. What else, uh, what else are we talking about? Myofibril, right? That's right, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, so, yeah, the different types of muscle, right? So striated muscle versus non-striated. So the striated muscle, yeah, different types of muscle. Right now we're focusing on skeletal muscle. But both skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle are striated. Right, which means they have sarcomeres. All right, we started talking about sarcomeres. All right, thin filaments and thick filaments, actin and myosin. And we mentioned another, some other supportive proteins such as titan and nebulin. And right, we had a nice slide of that over here. Right here. All right, so that's essentially a sarcomere. I could try to draw that, but this slide's a lot better. Um, but you can see thin filaments are actin and stabilized by nebulin, right? Thick filaments are myosin, myosin tails and myosin heads. The myosin heads, as we will learn, are what are actually making contact, right? So it's, I could try. For you guys' notes. Let's just say it's like this. All right, where these are the thin filaments and then the thick filaments. All right, yeah. Are like so, and then they've got these myosin heads. So this is the thin filaments. This is the thick filaments. And as you can see, Titan, Titan is kind of a connector. We've got Titan here. Titan is kind of providing some elasticity because what's going to happen is these things can lengthen and shorten, right? So, all 
See, in this case, it's not the thick filaments that are moving. Oh boy. Alright. Right, so here's like a sarcomere that's more open. Here's a sarcomere that's more closed. And what you can see is that the, what's gonna happen is the thin filaments are actually coming in, right? And so like as the thin filaments are coming in and out, Titan's providing some elasticity there, right? And then also nebulin is helping to stabilize and align the actin in the thin filament. So nebulin's in here in the red. So that's kind of the basic unit of striated muscle. Right? This is the sarcomere. And they define, yeah, the M, the middle, and the H zone, and all this. But really what you need to understand is that this sarcomere lengthens and shortens. And we're going to get into the mechanism of how that's actually happening. But essentially, you can see these things, the myosin heads, are motor proteins. So they literally pull. Imagine they're just like this, and they go like this. They're like pulling the thin filaments in, or, you know. They let them go, they pull them in. That's like what's happening here, right? This is when they're out, right? And then for the top one, they just pull the thin filaments in. Right? So that's kind of what's happening. Okay, anything else we can talk about? Oh yeah, and then of course, smooth muscle, right? Smooth muscle is different. Okay? Smooth muscle still has the myosin heads, but it doesn't have this it doesn't have the sarcomere structure. So it doesn't, it's not limited by the lengthening and shortening of a, of a sarcomere. So it can end up very stretched out and very constricted. Okay. Anything else we talk about? Yeah, right? The neuromuscular junction, we went back over that. Remember how how, in, in the case of skeletal muscle, right, this is all skeletal muscle. So all skeletal muscle, all skeletal muscle is controlled, there are two L's, by the somatic motor neurons, which we started to measure last lab, right? We were measuring somatic motor neuron electrical activity, right? This is part of your peripheral nervous system, right? Remember the peripheral nervous system is, you have somatic and you have autonomic. So for skeletal muscle, it's over here. This is voluntary. And autonomic is things like organs, you know, non-voluntary. And technically that's divided between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. 
Okay. Also things like blood vessels. Also, you know, organs, blood vessels. So organs, blood vessels. I can't spell. I think there's an A in there. Okay, so all skeletal muscles controlled by somatic motor neurons, right? Somatic motor neurons are always and they always synapse onto skeletal muscle. And you guys got this down yet? So what is the neurotransmitter that is released? At, at the end of a somatic motor neuron? Acetylcholine, nice. Acetylcholine, and so therefore the receptors, remember it forms this neuromuscular junction. Right, and the receptors, so there is a synapse, there's a synaptic cleft, but the receptors for the neurotransmitter are on the muscle. Right, the receptors themselves are on the muscle side. Okay, and those receptors are what type of receptors? Nicotinic, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Excellent. Right? Hopefully you guys got that down now. You're like, oh yeah, I know. You're like, I even know. We thought, we, we thought about some pathologies in the last exam, right? how this could go wrong or what happens, right? So we know, what is one disease that we talked about where this connection definitely becomes compromised? ALS. ALS, right, yeah. Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. Stephen Hawking. Right. And usually, when you develop ALS, you're, you don't live much, you know, your lifespan is projected to be four to five years or so once you start developing symptoms. Stephen Hawking was um, a special case. Right. How, how, about these, uh, Michael J. Fox? how bad is so? Michael J. Fox has what? Parkinson's, right? Parkinson's. Parkinson's, yeah. So that's a little bit different. That's more motor. It's still affecting his somatic motor neuron function, but a lot of that is originating up in the in the brain, right? So he's losing his ability. With Parkinson's, you're losing your inhib inhibitory capacity, so you're too active, but you're also having neuro neurodegeneration. So, um, all right. So, anything else? Let's see, it's about as far as we got, right? We were about to start talking about how this actually works, right? So, we know from our neuronal section, we know that the this may initiate in the brain, right? Or you know, first it's sensory, right? So we sense. We're looking around. We see things. That comes up to our somatosensory cortex, then may shift over to our motor cortex, and then, you know, starts coming down. Remember afferent and efferent, right? So afferently things come in, and then efferently we start to think about how we're going to move, or you know, or maybe we're not looking around. Maybe we just want to move. I don't know. But yeah, so then these motor neurons, right, are going to eventually, you know, you're. We know how action potentials work now, right? So we know that the sodium is going to rush in. Sodium 
blah, blah, blah. Action potential is going to come, right? And then finally, this action potential, right, arrives at the synapse or at the neuromuscular junction. Then what happens? What's that? Everybody's mumbling. Anybody confident? Or talk to your partner. Talk to your partner and, and tell think about what 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 happens when the sodium arrives at the at the neuromuscular junction. Okay, so let's say this is a muscle fiber. And, you know, I'm technically the receptors are going to be here, right? Okay. This is a specialized. I brought these. Okay. I'm trying to remember. Keep track of the markers here. Okay. So here's the somatic motor neuron input, right? So here's the somatic. Here's the somatic motor neuron, right? So the action potential propagated all the way to the terminus. Then what happens? That's right. So remember there's vesicles here. And then there's also, so you've got receptors on this side. But you've also got voltage-gated calcium channels that open here at the synapse, right? So once this... Uh, action potential arrives, it's going to trigger these calcium channels to open and calcium is going to rush in. Calcium rushes in, which then triggers, remember these snare proteins on the vesicles are calcium activated. So they will fuse with the membrane okay, and start to release Acetylcholine. Have a green? Nope. Maybe this green works. All right, this is acetylcholine. 
Okay, so calcium triggers the release of acetylcholine into the synaptic cleft. Now we know that acetylcholine then binds to the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, right? Which then, what that does is that causes what? That causes ions to enter into the postsynaptic side, which is in the muscle, right? Things like sodium, right? That, uh, potassium, sodium. So, uh, you know, an action potential. So the action potential propagates now on this side. Okay, so ions start to run. And then what happens to the acetylcholine? Ultimately, that's right. So ultimately, when this stops, the acetylcholine, it's going to be reshuttled and, and uh, it's going to be broken down by the acetylcholine esterase. Where does the acetylcholine esterase come from? I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, on the, it's in the synapse. It's on the postsynaptic side. It's, uh, but where does it come from? It's, I mean, it's, it's shuttled there. Protein trafficking. Is there like, a, like after um, an action potential like happens, then something tells it, okay, now let's start dumping ACAT out? That's, that a, that's a good question. Probably. It's probably, uh, there's probably some signaling mechanisms that, that increase acetylcholine esterase into the synaptic cleft after an action potential. But I'm not sure. That's something that we could look up. Um, okay, so acetylcholine esterase is going to uh, contribute to breaking down acetylcholine, but the action potential, so here, what color should we make the action potential? I've got orange. So the action potential, right, worked its way to the synapse. Okay, now it's released acetylcholine. That's going to cause the action potential now to propagate along the sarcolemma. Okay, and then down the T-tubules. So these are specialized regions of skeletal muscle called T-tubules. That kind of innervate into the muscle cell. And you can see that here you can kind of see how these T-tubules are. Right, they kind of innervate into, here's your sarcomere, right? And your sarcomeres actually ha are surrounded by sarcoplasmic reticulum and T-tubules, okay? And here's another picture. This is kind of what I'm drawing. As you can see that here's your somatic motor neuron innervation. Here's your acetylcholine being released. And then you can see that this is gonna propagate an action potential along the sarcolemma, so along the cell membrane, and then down the T-tubules, okay? That's what I'm trying to draw here. Maybe I'll make them a little bit longer. Okay, so down the T-tubules where they then activate these channels slash receptors called DHP, which stands for dihydropyridine L-type calcium channels. Okay, so I call them, uh, they're L-type calcium channels, but in skeletal muscle, their calcium activity is not required. So, which is in contrast to cardiac muscle. In cardiac muscle, we'll see that you actually, they need to act as calcium channels. But in skeletal muscle, that's not necessary. 
all that needs to happen in skeletal muscle is these DHP, these are voltage activated, DHP receptor slash channels, okay, are mechanically connected to what these receptors in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So there's receptors in the sarcoplasmic reticulum called ryanidine receptors, YR, Y, R, Y, R, ryanidine receptors, channels. Okay, ryanidine receptor channels open the floodgates. They're just, they're actually calcium channels. Okay, so when they open, calcium's gonna gush out, okay? So, but in the case of skeletal muscle, the DHPs are mechanically connected to the ryanidine receptors, okay? There's an actual physical connection to where when the DHP channels get activated from the action potential, it's, they pull the ryanidine receptors open, okay? Is that making sense? Well, yeah, Kathy. Okay. That's right, yeah. It will be the same whether it's when it's whether it's skeletal muscle or cardiac muscle there's there's an inner there's an inner communication between the DHP channels and the ryanidine receptor channels however it's different in that skeletal muscle there's a physical connection when we get to cardiac muscle we'll see that the DHPs actually act as a calcium channel and that's what activates the ryanidine receptors but in skeletal muscle the calcium activity is not required yeah Sandy ryanidine Ryanidine receptor. It is a calcium channel. So the deal is, is I, I think I told you guys this before, is that, and I think you know this, that calcium is much higher outside of the cell than inside of the cell, right? Calcium is very high outside. That's why when these channels open, calcium rushes in, right? Calcium is very high. So if we do our little thing here. If this is a cell, calcium is high on the outside and calcium is low on the inside. Do you guys agree? But then I think I told you that in the endoplasmic reticulum, in the ER, calcium is actually high. Did I tell you that? Does anybody remember that? So now this is going to come into play. because the ER is high, the cell it's low, and the outside it's high. So in muscle, the ER is modified to be the SR, but it still has this phenomenon where it's much higher in calcium. It's much higher in calcium than, than the cytosol or cytoplasm, the rest of the cytoplasm in a muscle. So what happens is the ryanidine receptors, Sandy, the ryanidine receptors, here now I've got a long connection here. The ryanidine receptors are calcium channels that open. So when DHP becomes activated, it opens the ryanidine channels, which then cause calcium to rush out. So calcium which is out into the cytosol, cytoplasm of the, 
of the cells. Does that make sense? So, and that's what you see here. See there how there's, there's a lot of calcium in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So there's calcium out here that's high, so it causes it to rush in here. But then also inside of the cell, excuse me, the SR is very high in calcium. So it releases it out of the ryanodine receptors. So what happens is, you can see that here, see this mechanical connection? So DHP channels are mechanically connected to the ryanodine receptors, which open to allow calcium to flow out. Okay? Should I be writing these steps down? You can see them on the side here, right? So one and two is like, I mean, I, probably the slide's gonna be better, but I don't know, there's a lot to write down there, right? So the action potential goes down the T-tubule and then arrives at the DHP channels or slash receptors that are mechanically connected to the ryanodine receptors, which then open the ryanodine receptors, causing calcium to rush out. Once calcium rushes out, it interacts with the thin, the thin, uh, the thin filaments. Okay, so going back to our thing here, our sarcomere. Technically, these thin filaments have more than just actin, right? There's also troponin and tropomyosin. So there's these other things around here. See, did I do this right? So, uh, I need like a better. <laughs> so you've got, here's a thin filament, okay? Technically, it's also got troponin and, tropo and tropomyosin. I've got a better picture of this. There we go. Okay, so you've got actin, troponin, and tropomyosin. And of course, you've got the myosin head. Right, that wants to bind. Now, the myosin head wants to bind to... Um, Tropomyosin shifts out of the way, the myosin actually binds to actin. So the, the myosin wants to bind to actin, but troponin and tropomyosin are potentially in the way. So normally they won't bind. However, in the presence of calcium, What happens is what happens is calcium binds troponin. Okay? Calcium binds so just think of like calcium rushes in what calcium does is it it binds to troponin and then the troponin tropomyosin complex these things they move out of the way. So that now the myosin heavy chain 
can actually bind to actin. That makes sense. So can you see? Can you guys see that? Yeah. Um, I think it stabilizes actin, but primarily what it's doing is it's it's um it's a dynamic or not a dynamic it, it it's blocking the actin binding site, and then in the presence of calcium, calcium it undergoes a conformational change that kind of moves it out of the way so that the myosin head will actually bind. So most importantly, its function is to um, normally block muscles from being, um, what's the word, from always being attached, I guess. The mycin heads from always being attached. It's in, in conjunction with a ATP, ADP. Right? So the other side of this story is the ATP, ADP is also important for myosin binding. Okay, but you need both of those things. You need the presence of calcium and you also need uh, the ability to hydrolyze energy in order for this system to work. Um, but yeah, it's probably also stabilizing. It's probably also a stabilizer like nebulin. Okay. Yes. Pretty much, it starts to, it starts to, you know, it's, yeah, basically yes. I mean, the way they showed in the cartoons is the ATP gets hydrolyzed to ADB plus P, and then in the next step the phosphate falls off, but it originated as ATP. And ATP is required for the actual binding, <laughs> which we'll see when we see the power stroke. Okay, so everyone understands that as calcium rushes, so so wait, so the action potential propagates. Okay, down uh, the T-tubules, interacts with the DHP receptor slash channel. That's mechanically connected to the ryanonine receptor in the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which will cause calcium to leak out, right? Calcium leaks out. Okay, and what calcium does is calcium binds troponin. Calcium binds troponin, but troponin is also connected to tropomyosin. And so those things both, I think it's the tropomyosin that's actually blocking the actin binding site. Okay, so long story short, yeah, there you go. That's a better, this is a better cartoon. So calcium binds troponin. Troponin is connected to tropomyosin. So together they cause a conformational shift. Oh, here you go. They cause a conformation from here to there. There's a conformational shift which then allows this myosin head to make a connection to actin. Okay. Can they see connection with what? With actin. Yeah. So this allows myosin to bind actin. Okay. Which is what we want, right? Because that's that's how we get this to happen, right? The myosin heads have to be able to bind to the actin and pull it, right? So that's what you see up here. So to make this connection happen, you need calcium, okay? So that's the whole point of that. Okay, so going back here, here, this is a decent uh, slide of it too, right? So calcium is released. And then by the way, there's, there is a calcium pump. So at the end of all this, 
okay, there is a calcium pump, an ATPase that will then pump the calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Okay. Is that making sense? So that's how muscles are contracting. Now let's look at the, uh, the actual power stroke. So this is the actual power stroke. I do not want to have to try to draw this. <laughs> but um, what the important parts are is that, where is it? Okay, so I, I actually said it wrong. It's ATP binding actually causes it to release off of it. But then um, it, to reattach, it has to start hydrolyzing the ATP. This is what I was talking about, uh, Joe. So technically, this is still kind of ATP. ATP attaching um, releases from actin. Yeah, so that's why I was a little bit. I said it a little bit wrong. Because so think of it this way: a, a good way to remember is if you run out of ATP, if you completely run out of ATP, you cannot un, you cannot uh, let go. You would just be stuck. And that's rigor mortis, right? So rigor mortis is like you run out of ATP, so the myosin heads are just stuck there, right? They can't let go. That's one of the explanations for rigor mortis. So that'll help you remember it. But I still mix it up. But that's that's what I should re always remember in my head to remember, right? So, um, but yeah. So then you need the ATP in order to let go. But then you also need to start hydrolyzing ATP in order to latch on, right? So it's like, and that's what you see, that's what you see here. So ATP binds, it lets go, but then it starts to hydrolyze and then it latches on. Then the actual process of removing the phosphate, kicking the phosphate off, is what causes the power stroke, where it actually does this, which makes sense, right? When you're using the energy is when you actually go, you have the movement, okay? So that's what's happening here. The phosphate gets knocked off. It actually pulls the thin filament in, right? It's starting to pull it in. And then uh, the ADP molecule is released, and, and then it will stay stuck. It stays stuck until another ATP comes to allow it to let go. And that's what you see here. This is like the stuck spot. Okay? That's right. That's right. So you need ATP to bind and to uh, cause the, the, uh, the power stroke, but you also need the initial binding of ATP to let go. That makes sense. Basically, ATP, you need ATP for everything, but the thing is, is that if you run out of ATP, it will actually be stuck and it won't be able to let go. And that's rigor mortis. Yeah, Sandy. Uh, this is sliding filament theory, but I don't know. Do people call it the contraction cycle? Oh, yeah, that's probably this is this is like the power stroke. Uh, you know, it's terminology. It's uh, it is what's happening when the muscle's contracting. So, I'm sure they have a but the theory, this whole idea of the thin filament sliding over the thick filaments and all that, that's sliding filament theory, right? So whatever. We don't do memorization much in this class. We'll do more the what's what's going on in there. Okay. 
Okay, so what you're looking at here is the electrical activity of a muscle. Okay, at the top, what you're looking at is the motor neuron action potential. Okay, so if, if the see if the electrode was stuck to the actual motor neuron, of course that's going to fire first, right? Then the second thing that's going to happen is it's going to propagate along the sarcolemma, okay, across the cell membrane. So if you had an electrode there. You see that happening slightly after. Okay, and finally what's going to actually happen is the, see this is tension, so this is different. These top two you're looking at electrical activity. This bottom one is looking at tension, so that means actual force. So this is measuring the force produced by the muscle. So it's just saying that first the action potential comes, then the muscle contracts, right? That makes sense? That makes sense. Okay. Okay, you guys want to watch a video? Sometimes these are good. Impulses, also known as action potentials, travel from the brain or spinal cord to trigger the contraction of skeletal muscles. An action Better than my drawing. Propagates down a motor neuron to a skeletal muscle fiber. The site where a motor neuron excites a skeletal muscle fiber is called the neuromuscular junction. This junction is a chemical synapse consisting of the points of contact between the axon terminals of a motor neuron and the motor end plate of the skeletal muscle fiber. The events at the neuromuscular junction occur in seven coordinated steps. Step one. An action potential travels the length of the axon of a motor neuron to an axon terminal. Step 2. Voltage-gated calcium channels open and calcium ions diffuse into the terminal. Step 3. Calcium entry causes synaptic vesicles to release acetylcholine via exocytosis. Step 4. Acetylcholine diffuses across the synaptic cleft and binds to acetylcholine receptors, which contain ligand-gated cation channels. Step 5. These ligand-gated cation channels open. Step 6. Sodium ions, shown here in red, enter the muscle fiber, and potassium ions, shown here in blue, exit the muscle fiber. The greater inward flux of sodium ions relative to the outward flux of potassium ions causes the membrane potential to become less negative. Step 7. Once the membrane potential reaches a threshold value, an action potential propagates along the sarcolemma. Neural transmission to a muscle fiber ceases when acetylcholine is removed from the synaptic cleft. This removal occurs in two ways. One, acetylcholine diffuses away from the synapse. Two, Acetylcholine is broken down by the enzyme acetylcholinesterase to acetic acid and choline.
Choline is then transported into the axon terminal for the resynthesis of acetylcholine. Sweet. You guys want to watch another one? Yes? No? Yeah? Alright. It's not bad. Is it better it's better than my drawing, right? The contraction of a skeletal muscle generates the force necessary to move the skeleton. A contraction is triggered by a series of molecular events known as the cross bridge cycle. In a skeletal muscle fiber, the functional unit of contraction is called the sarcomere. A sarcomere shortens when myosin heads in thick myofilaments form cross bridges with actin molecules in thin myofilaments. The formation of a cross bridge is initiated when calcium ions released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum bind to troponin. This binding causes troponin to change shape. Tropomyosin moves away from the myosin binding sites on actin, allowing the myosin head to bind actin and form a cross bridge. Also note that the myosin head must be activated before a cross bridge cycle can begin. This occurs when ATP binds to the myosin head and is hydrolyzed to ADP and inorganic phosphate. The energy liberated from the hydrolysis of ATP activates the myosin head, forcing it into the cocked position. A cross-bridge cycle may be divided into four steps. Step 1. Cross-bridge formation. The activated myosin head binds to actin, forming a cross-bridge. Inorganic phosphate is released, and the bond between myosin and actin becomes stronger. Step 2. The power stroke. ADP is released, and the activated myosin head pivots sliding the thin myofilament toward the center of the sarcomere. Step three, cross bridge detachment. When another ATP binds to the myosin head, the link between the myosin head and actin weakens and the myosin head detaches. Step four, reactivation of the myosin head. ATP is hydrolyzed to ADP and inorganic phosphate. The energy released during hydrolysis reactivates the myosin head, returning it to the cocked position. As long as the binding sites on actin remain exposed, the cross-bridge cycle will repeat. And as the cycle repeats, the thin myofilaments are pulled toward each other and the sarcomere shortens. This shortening causes the whole muscle to contract. Cross-bridge cycling ends when calcium ions are actively transported back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Troponin returns to its original shape 
allowing trophomycin to glide over and cover the myosin binding site on actin. Sweet. Okay, so hopefully now everyone understands how a muscle is contracting. Sliding filament theory, whatever you want to call it. Okay, uh, some other things we should talk about is some of the some of the basic energetics. We're going to get more into energetics. I'm probably going to give you one more lecture of muscle that getting more into energetics. Uh, but we could start talking about the initial energetic supply of muscle coming from ATP and creatine kinase. So I think based off of what we just saw, you need to have ATP in order for muscles to contract, right? We just saw the, the power stroke. So of course you need a constant supply of ATP. So where's that ATP coming from? So one way that ATP can be replenished is by creatine phosphate, right? Donates its phosphate to regenerate uh, ATP, right? So creatine phosphate, where is a better picture? Is this the best I have? Yeah, or phosphocreatine. You guys have heard of creatine? All right, so what does creatine actually do, right? So this is creatine, or you can call it a phosphocreatine. So especially if you're talking about energetics, so if you're talking about time and energy pathway, Initially, if we're talking about muscle, initially you can use the ATP-CP pathway. It only works for like 10 seconds. Okay, so it's not like a, a super endurance type of thing. But you have a reserve, sorry, you have a reserve of phosphocreatine or creatine phosphate, okay, that can replenish the ADP. So ATP gets hydrolyzed to ADP. Creatine phosphate can donate a phosphate to then convert ADP, right? Because this is adenosine diphosphate. This is adenosine triphosphate. Alright, so the difference between the two is just a phosphate. Right? So then phosphocreatine has a phosphate. So then what uh, phosphocreatine can do is donate that phosphate to ADP in order to form ATP again. Yeah? Make, make sense? So that's why if you're weightlifting 
or if you're doing like a, maybe a fast sprint or something like that, you can actually get some energetic benefit from taking creatine, right? Because you'll have, the idea is that if you supplement with creatine, you'll end up with more phosphocreatine. So then it, within this short time frame, you might actually be able to extend this slightly with having a greater reservoir of creatine phosphate. Okay. Problem with that is if you're a marathon runner or if you're like an endurance runner or anything like that, you're not going to get any benefit. You're very likely not going to get any benefit from creatine because it's only supplying energy in this very short, limited energy pathway. So that's why it's preferred for like weightlifters, right? Yeah. It might last 10 seconds. What's that? It might help in that last 10 seconds. Not the last 10 seconds, maybe the first 10 seconds. I mean like when you start sprinting all that at the finish line. Yeah, I mean it's, but at that point you're like generating, yeah, what's up, Eric? You're generating a lot of uh, ATP from other weight. But see, unless you're like doing some sort of crazy circuit training thing, like every time you're lifting weights, you're resting, right? So you like, you do a spurt and then you rest. Then you do a spurt and then you rest. Then you do a spurt and then you rest. That's different than just, if you're running, then you're consistently, there's no rest. I mean, on your legs, right? There's pretty much, they don't get to rest. They're just constantly moving. Unless you want to take a little breather or something. Right? They're not really, and I mean, in general, your legs are, don't really rest much, right? Because they're, they're and, and so that's another part of this is that your legs, particularly like your soleus and, you know, the things that are like constantly weight-bearing are also primarily a different type of muscle fiber than maybe the ones you might be utilizing when you're weightlifting, depending on what kind of weightlifting you're doing, right? And we got to talk about that too, the type one, the type two muscle fibers, right? But... In theory, they should all, they will all still undergo a burst of ATP-CP. Then what comes next is glycolysis, right? You could say uh, anaerobic glycolysis. And then ultimately... Aerobic respiration, right? Depending upon the muscle type, right? Some muscles are not going to even want to do this. They're going to be primarily glycolytic. So they're going to be in this area. They'll fatigue quickly. They'll accumulate. So it depends. Um, this is the general thing. Um, and notice I didn't put, you know, this is like in seconds, maybe minutes, and this can go for, for you know, it depends on the individual. Dean Carnesi's can run for three days and get tired from needing sleep before he gets tired from running. You guys know about him? You read his book? Do you know what his actual genetic mutation is? That's an extra credit. Uh, possibility if you can figure that out. I, I thought it was in his lactate shuttling uh, capability because I know he's got a he doesn't have a lactate threshold like he just never accumulates lactate in his blood. So we're gonna get so our next lecture we're gonna talk about the energetics we're gonna get into that stuff very specifically. Um, I can show you real quick what I'm talking about.
This is the cell biology version. <laughs> this is the lactate threshold, right? So we haven't talked about lactic acid yet and stuff like that. Um, so that's part of this, part of anaerobic glycolysis. Right, so once you're done with ATP-CP, we can go into anaerobic glycolysis. At that point, if you're not utilizing oxygen, you're going to accumulate lactic acid. Right, and so, but there's always a bit of this going on. So as you go into higher and higher intensity exercise, you tend to accumulate lactate in your blood. Right, lactate levels go up, and this may contribute to fatigability. Um, certainly, it's an indication that you're not able you're not getting enough oxygen potentially if you're doing something for a long period of time right um, if you don't have enough oxygen you may have to di re divert to something that doesn't require oxygen right but then if you do that you'll accumulate lactic acid so anyway so this is the idea is that intense high intensity exercise even if it's endurance you should increase lactate uh, so this this doesn't happen with him <laughs> he just never has high lactate in his blood. This never happens. So the reason for that could be because he's so good at aerobic respiration that he never has a problem. Or it could be his ability to shuttle lactate, to transport lactate out of his blood, to be re... because you can convert lactate back into glucose through gluconeogenesis. But it costs ATP, but we're, we're going to talk about all that stuff. Next lecture. But, uh... Interesting guy. If anybody could figure out what I thought it was, I must have been like dreaming though, because I, I thought I like knew for sure what it was, and then I was like trying to look it up on the internet, and I was like, I can't find. Like, was I dreaming? It's like so. Uh, if anybody could find out what is actual gen, I thought it was an MCT in one of the MCT uh, transporters, lactate transporters. But if you can figure that out, that's an extra credit possibility, opportunity. Because I, I like that idea that it's turns the whole thing on its head, like that he's actually just better at anaerobic glycolysis. Yeah. Isn't it called like lactate dehydrogenase syndrome? Le lactate dehydrogenase? Yeah. He has lactate dehydrogenase syndrome? That's what you said. Send me the, send me the, <laughs> yeah, send me, send me the info or write a little thing on it and you can, that's an extra credit opportunity, okay? Okay, so um, where were we? Okay, so this is just... So before we get into all that, just know that one pathway, a short pathway, is this ATP-CP pathway, right? And this is literally what happens is that the phosphate from creatine can replenish the, uh, the ADP to form ATP. It's just that movement of phosphates. How you doing, Nicole? You hanging in there? Cool. We're almost done. We're almost done. Okay. What's up? The, the enzyme that phosphorylates. Situation is the kinase, or is it like yes. Is ATP synthase like a generic term, or is that like a specific enzyme? Like ATP synthase is a, is a specific enzyme that exists in a lot of different organisms, okay. and it, it is it, it utilizes a proton. We'll get into that stuff too. Okay. It utilizes a proton gradient to generate ATP in your mitochondria, yeah. or in chloroplasts and plants, and so um, no. in the cell membrane of prokaryotes. But yeah, it's, a, it's one example of conservation. It exists in all these different organisms and it does the same thing. I know it's doing the same thing as we've seen here. Kind of. So, so in a nutshell, just to answer your question, ATP synthase, it's got this propeller-like thing going. And what it does, because you guys love to talk about membranes, right? 
diffusion, right? So what happens is it's just like the battery, right? You have lots of H pluses on one side that got there through waves through the movement of electrons. But ultimately you have lots of H pluses on one side and not on the other. And then when this thing opens, of course by facilitated diffusion, the hydrogen protons want to go this way, right? So as that happens, as they go through here, this ATP synthase harnesses that energy, utilizes that energy in order to make lots and lots and lots and lots of ATP. That's like the trick to the, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of our cells, is the ATP synthase and the development of these proton gradients. Okay. Okay. Okay, we got it. So this stuff is all relevant to your lab, so we should cover it. I should have this here. Okay. Different types of muscles. We can skip that. Okay, so this is what we were getting to with uh, Erica. I think we were talking about this, right? So, or uh, the different muscle types that may be working under different conditions. Right, so, and this is, this is also, I should also say that there is a size and scale relationship to this. So another, if you take a mouse, you know a mouse, mouses can do, mice can do incredible things, right? If you, you can have a mouse on your hand and it can jump off your hand, land on the ground and like run off, it's fine. Could you imagine like the equivalent to that if we like jumped off of, how tall of a building would that be? Or like, does anyone own a chihuahua? Right? Have you ever? Isn't it the same as us jumping from right here to the floor, though? If I mean, it's still. Well, think of like the size and scale relationship. Like, how big a mouse is? Like, yeah, I mean, technically, you know, but think about how many body lengths that is. Yeah. And it's like the Chihuahua. So, my wife has a. You know, we have a Chihuahua. So my wife has the Chihuahua, and so we were we were doing this thing where I was rollerblading and she was biking with a basket with the Chihuahua in it. And uh, the first day we go, like, the chihuahua jumps out of the bike and, like, lands on the floor because he thinks he's a flying squirrel, right? <laughs> and uh, my wife's like, no, my God, like, the dog, you know? And then so someone rushes over, and they're like, oh, are you okay? What's up? And she's like, oh, my dog, he jumped out. It's like, oh, it's okay. My, my friend, she had a chihuahua that jumped off the second-story balcony, and he was fine. <laughs> it's like, like, literally the first person that came to help. We were like, oh, okay, thanks, you know? And then somebody else comes. Like, some other person rushes up. It's like, oh, is everything okay? He's like, yeah, my dog, the chihuahua, he jumped. He's like, oh, it's okay. My friend had a chihuahua that jumped out of the car on the freeway, and he was okay. <laughs> and I was like, what is with the chihuahuas? Dude? Like, are they just like flying squirrels, or what is the deal with them? So not the brightest dogs, I don't know. But uh, anyway, so they're pretty small, right? So they can get away with doing these crazy things. And So another thing, the point of that, though, is that size and scale matters for skeletal muscle composition as well. So if you take a mouse, and if you pull any muscle off of a mouse, most of them are going to be type 2A or type 2B, type 2X. They're going to be primarily glycolytic. But if you take uh, a cow or if you take a human, like if you take us, if you pull muscles off of us, most of them are going to be more this way, like type 2A or type, type 1. And maybe it has to do with the fact that we're more weight carrying, right? So we're constantly having to, to um, 
you know, to carry ourselves out of, and so, and of course the ones like your, like the most, one of the reddest uh, muscles in your body is the soleus, which is in your gas, which is in your uh, calf, calf muscles, right? Because you're always standing on them. And then another one is your diaphragm. So your diaphragm is always working to make you breathe, right? So those even in a mouse are red, or even uh, type 1. Okay. So, but, but the point here is that so there's a lot of information on this table, but you can think about it like this. Type 1. You guys do this in anatomy too, right? So you know all this stuff. So what's the biggest difference between type 1, type 2A, and type 2X? So this is like a primary metabolism, or preferred metabolism. Did it say that on there somewhere? Yeah, metabolism. Right. So primary metabolism. Okay, if it's type one, then it is. So how about we'll also add color. If it's type one, it's red. You could say this is more like uh, it could be red or white. We'll call it pink, <laughs> which is not really pink, but white. The same if you're, you know, dark meat and and white meat, right? Does it have color on there? Yeah, re dark red. So they put dark red and red. Okay, I'll do that. Dark red. Nobody knows the primary metabolism. They don't talk about that. That's right. Yeah. So type one is yeah. These are aerobic. Then these are what does it say on there? Yeah, so they're both. They could be glycolytic or aerobic. They're more glycolytic, but they can still be aerobic. Right? And then type two B, type two C, type two X. Okay, now we're talking about anaerobic. Okay, this muscle is kind of unique. There's very few places in our body that prefer to be anaerobic. One of them is encompasses a large portion of your body that's 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 anaerobic, glycolytic. So this is, I should say, glycolytic. Anaerobic. Also, these are larger, right? So these are the largest. These are the smallest, right? In, in terms of size, right? Which is why the bodybuilders look pumped and the marathon runners are like not necessarily pumped. Response to training, like thicker, like getting thicker, or like I mean, hypertrophy. We're always utilizing 
type 1 fibers are already already being stimulated all the time for use. But there's different ways that they adjust. So there's a couple other parameters here that are very important that I haven't mentioned yet that I should make room for. One of them is mitochondria. And another is capillary density. Because that is what actually facilitates and contributes the utilization and delivery of nutrients like oxygen. Those things change dramatically when you train, even in the aerobic uh, muscles, right? So does it say? Yeah, it says it on there. So mitochondria and capillary density is highest in the type 1. So this is highest. Right? And as we'll learn, it makes sense because mitochondria are only needed when you're doing aerobic respiration, right? So going back to this, the green one is the mitochondria. Mitochondria is not needed for these. So it makes sense that mitochondria is going to be the highest in the dark muscle. And also capillary density just means the, the nutrient delivery. Nutrient delivery is highest in the, in the uh, type 1s. Okay? So that means over here they're lowest in the type 2s. So remember that. Okay. That makes sense? guys following along okay let's see what else that's pretty much all this stuff okay how about this this is length tension relationship what do you guys know about length tension relationship this might be a good time to talk to your partner and explain to them what you think is the is length tension relationship Okay, so what do you guys figure out? What's the deal with this link tension thing? Anybody know? Christina, what do you think? You don't have a partner. Did you talk to these guys? Yeah. Okay, cool. What do you guys think? Um, it's, a, it's 
amount of tension or amount of ATP runs out and the mus and the overlapping of the muscle fiber loses or doesn't have any more energy, ATP. All right, so you're thinking like power stroke rigor mortis, but this is actually having to do with force production. So, um, you know, in other words, like, think of, think of it this way. Let's say you have a surgery, let's say you have a hand problem, and so you have surgery on your hand. And so the doctor, when he's reattaching your muscle, he has to actually make sure that he reattaches it at the right, like, tension, or else you're not going to be able to use your hand anymore. If he attaches it so that your sarcomeres are too long, you won't be able to grab things anymore. And if he attaches it so it's not stretched enough, same problem. You're not going to be able to. So he has to be able to set your muscle at the right length for you to be able to produce enough tension or force. Does that make sense? This was a serious problem, actually, for surgeons for a while. So they, they'd be like trying, you know, they're trying to set it just right. And if they don't, this is a problem with skeletal muscle because skeletal muscle has this length tension relationship where if it's too stretched, or if it's too short, this, what this represents is the, the amount of force you can produce. Okay, so if it's too stretched, you can't do anything. If it's too short, you can't do anything. So imagine that's got to be a problem for a hand surgeon trying to get it just right, right? Because you're under anesthesia. You're not going to tell them, like, you know, move your finger or whatever, right? They have to wait for you to wake up and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I screwed it up. I made it too stretched. Right, so they actually figured out there was a guy at UCSD named Rick Lieber and he figured out how to shoot lasers through muscles to measure sarcomeres largely so he could take a muscle and shoot a laser at it and get it to diffract so that he could see the sarcomere size literally this big on a screen so that they can adjust it the sarcomere length to the perfect amount in order to achieve maximum tension for the patient that was a big breakthrough he's he's a big shot now he's at He's the chief scientific officer at Reich, RIC, Rehabilitation Institute Chicago, which is the best orthopedic hospital in the world for 20 years, or in the country for at least 20 years or so. He was one of my PhD advisors. He was one of my faculty, or committee members on my, my PhD. So do, some people, do you think some people uh, will have surgeries like that done to increase athletic performance to have their sharpness shortened or uh, length of the, the well, naturally, naturally, you should have them be. You you should. Uh, you should be born unless there's something wrong. You should be born with the optimal length tension relationship for your skeletal muscles. So would that be improved? Say you're a bodybuilder and you're you're going at it and you're building up those muscles. Where you started at the beginning of this, and where you are, say three months later, you built up more more of a length relationship because the muscles have built up that so if you know you may be able to produce a more maximal force because you have more muscle more sarcomere thickening you know you but this this right here is describing just the relationship of how the sarcomeres themselves function based off of their length so we'll see it's different in heart and it's different in smooth muscle it doesn't, it doesn't go along with the build up of muscle 
I mean, it may, the build of a muscle may affect your ability, like the, what your actual maximum is. But this, this relationship won't change in terms of the shortness and the, you know, if, if the sarcomere is too stretched versus if the sarcomere is too uh, short, tight, right? This relationship is unique to skeletal muscle. And so, and we'll see it's different in the heart. If this were the case of in your heart, imagine, let's say your heart gets too full of blood. Right? Let's say you're having like a, a backup or something. Let's say so your heart gets too full of blood, so it's too stretched. Imagine if this were the case in the heart. So your heart just stopped working. That would be a problem. Right? So that's not what happens in your heart. You'll see your heart, it looks more like this. It will actually work better. That's the Frank Starling law of the heart. We'll learn about that. Hearts are different, right? They will they will react. If they're if they're stretched further, they'll work, they'll be able to to, to uh, produce more force. Thankfully, or else we would have a problem, right? Whereas with um, skeletal muscle, that's not the case though. Skeletal muscle, it kind of peaks in the middle. And if it's, too, if it's too stretched, it actually won't function well at all. Okay, so that's the point of that slide. Does that make sense? So it's actually more important, you know, leg tension is important, right? <laughs> so, uh, another important property of muscle is its ability to summate. Okay, so this is also different. Well, it's, it's true for all muscle types, but the heart has a way of preventing this from happening. Okay, because in skeletal muscle, and how many of you have had like a leg cramp before? Like a cramp. Like it's just like tightens up and you're like, oh God, like that's kind of like your muscles goes into tendony where it just like uh, is unrestricted contraction for a moment and then finally it'll relax. Okay, that's, that's this. This is tendony. So what happens in, and it, it happens for different reasons, you know, in a cramp than it does here. But what happens here in skeletal muscle is, let's say I hook up an electrode to your muscle. So when I fire the electrode, it fi fires your somatic motor neuron, boom, and it makes your muscle contract, right? So if I do that, God, these markers. There you go. So if I stimulate here, stimulate here, right? We measure the muscle force production. We see that as I stimulate, it contracts and then it goes back down, right? But then what's, what's skeletal muscle though, if you start putting these things close together, okay, where they don't have time to relax, they will summate. Right, so if they're close together, they'll summate. So the second one will be more. And then if you put a bunch of them together, okay, it may summate until the point where it may reach tendony. Tendony is where it just hits this point where it cannot contract any harder and it just stays there for a little while and then until it can finally relax. If you were to keep stimulating it, it would just stay there. It would stay at tendony. So that's kind of like the maximal force production that it can generate, okay, before it, until you stop the stimuli, then it can relax. Okay, so a lot of times when we're assessing, you know, muscle, the we generate these force frequency curves. We induce tendony on purpose at different frequencies to try to elicit the maximal response out of the muscle. But this is a, now if this, imagine if this happened in your heart. Imagine if your heart, 
like had a bunch of signals and then all of a sudden went into tetany or just like arrested what would that be yeah it's basically a heart attack right like that would be very problematic so we'll we'll learn about how your heart uh you know has some unique biochemistry and, and physiology to try to prevent tetany from ever happening okay Whereas it's not the case in skeletal muscle. Skeletal, skeletal muscle can easily reach tetany. All right, and this was the story with the motor unit. So you guys were assessing motor units last lab, but you didn't know it, or you may have known it. Okay, so this is the idea that, uh, the idea is that, you know, there's a certain amount of muscle fibers or bundles that are controlled by a specific motor unit. Right, but you have multiple motor units, so you're not always getting 100% recruitment of muscle whenever you're doing something, right? The more load you apply, maybe the more motor units you recruit, right? But there's also fine proprioception, where in your dominant hand, you may actually have more motor uh, units, right? Because you have a greater fine, fine, uh, fine uh, control, right? So you may have refined it down so you have more motor units per muscle, or what, if that makes sense. They're not motor, more, less muscles per, less muscle fibers per motor unit. Or you can imagine if I had one motor unit running to my hand, if that one fired, my whole hand would go like this, right? So that would be worthless because then I can never pick up anything, right? So then I have more motor units, right? So that I can move each finger or be able to do all these different things, right? And you may have better control over your dominant hand than you do on your non-dominant hand, right? So that may actually have to do with the fact that you have less muscle fibers per motor unit on your dominant hand versus your non-dominant. So the idea is, if that's the case, then the question is, when you're trying to do these fine motor movements, which side do you think is recruiting more? As I go like this, which side is recruiting more motor units or which side do you think has less motor units the dominant or the non-dominant talk to your partner what do you think you know because nerves there is some neurogenesis that occurs and per peripheral nerves can regenerate to some degree but not a major degree so I'm not sure but refinement developmentally I'm not sure about refinement as you're already mature I'm yeah. I mean I, I can't I mean intuitively I, I kind of think that you 
I mean, you can develop greater motor coordination as you train. So that has to be refinement somewhere. I don't know if that, I don't know if like anatomically how that translates. If that's like cerebral motor control or if that's peripheral motor control and refinement. That I'm not sure. My, uh, when I took physio. You could, extra credit opportunity. Yeah. But so some of this stuff though, I mean, so when you, so if you compare humans and chimpanzees, for example, if you guys know, like chimpanzees can rip our arms off if they want to, right? Like it's really crazy how much stronger chimpanzees are than humans. And so what people have been trying to figure that out. They've been like, what is the explanation for why chimpanzees are so much stronger than humans? And one possibility that they've brought up is motor neuron, like motor, um, um, the amount of motor units is actually less in a chimpanzee than a human. So we have more like fine motor control. They have less maybe fine motor control, is what they're suggesting, which may contribute to an actually greater strength because you have greater muscle recruitment per motor unit. So I don't know if... I don't know if, um, so it may also influence strength, is, was the point of that. I don't know why, it's just a tangent. I just wanted to talk about it, I don't know. But no, I, I, but I wonder that all the time. What's that? I said I wonder that all the time, actually. What, why, why they're so much stronger? Yeah. So, but, but, so there's a fundamental anatomical difference in motor unit number between us and them. So then, um, so an, I, I, I guess the, what took me off on that tangent was that, yeah, I mean, I guess, can you actually change your motor unit recruitment as an adult? Or is it anatomically there, but like you're saying, the analogy is like, yeah, you just, but then figuring out a way to get there, what does that mean anatomically? That, that's got to be, because ultimately you have you know, your, each motor neuron is running to a certain amount of muscle fibers. So then how can you, how does refinement occur? I mean, I don't, I, I, that's what I, I've said, I'm telling him that's an extra credit possibility if you guys want to look into it. Because, because uh, uh, it's interesting. But anyway, so that was supposed to be the, sorry, we're, it's kind of a tangent, because I, I don't know the answer. So that's why, um, just so if we don't know the answer then I don't understand the analogy because I I think I think yes but I don't know <laughs> so uh, so okay so so this was the point of your lab you were like squeezing tennis balls and like the idea was hypothetically one should have mo more motor neuron recruitment than the other but we'll see what you guys actually saw experimentally right and then uh, today you're going to be doing some more of that again. Okay, so maybe during the break I'll try to look more into this refinement. But I still think it would be a great extra credit opportunity if anybody wants to look into it further. 
Okay, and then contractions. I don't know if we need to talk. And then levers. We can kind of, I mean, do you guys know uh, eccentric, uh, isometric, isocontractions versus concentric, eccentric contractions? So one, concentric is like involving movement. Isometric would be like not moving, but still flexing or whatever. Um, and then, uh, of course, you know, your muscles are connected to bones and the way that things are organized are like kind of like levers, right? Um, but yeah, that's more like mechanical. Um, it's important, biomechanics are important for physiology. Uh, but uh, I'm more interested in, in uh, I don't know, everybody's got their interests, right? So, okay, but it, it is good to understand the difference between an isometric and a concentric contraction and understand uh, the biomechanics of how muscles, you know, you, how your body has developed, uh, you know, your skeletal structure is supporting your muscles in a way where everything is connected like levers and has pivot points for the most part. Okay, uh, so that's enough for today. Hopefully you guys got something out of that.